Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schuette. And Willa Walsh, and you're listening to Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good this summer. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. The music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul! And today we're bringing you a story from the Welcome Project's Flight Paths Initiative. Once again, we've heard a few of those beforehand, but today's story is titled Repatriation Movement. And so just to give you a little bit of background uh, about the Flight Paths Initiative, this has a lot of different stories um, talking uh, about uh, history and Gary, um, a lot of like white flight, the city surrounding Gary, economic disinvestment, industrialization of the steel mills, the rise of the black power movement. So we have a variety of different stories like this in the Northwest Indiana region, and that's what we call our Flight Paths Initiative. And so today's story uh, fits within that bucket. So just to give you a rundown of things, we'll go ahead and play the story and discuss the storyteller's experience and, the, and also the commentary we've gotten on the story from social media lately. And as a fun surprise, we have a special guest with us today, Reagan Skaggs. Uh, Reagan has been on with us before, but we're so glad to have you back. Yay! Welcome <laughs> back. And Reagan and I, we both volunteered with the Welcome Project uh, while we were at Belmont University. Welcome, Reagan. Yes, thank you for having me. So, okay, does it make sense to talk a little bit about like what we did at the Welcome Project when we were there? I know it's been like a couple years. Yeah, it has, it's been a while. So uh, when Willow and I were volunteering together, what we mostly did was help to run facilitations. So we would take the beautiful stories that have been archived for us, create conversations around them, and then go to places within our community, sometimes out of state, out of our community, um, and then try to have those uh, conversations about what it means to be you know a person in the world and I've got a little bit of blurb about the story but I kind of went through the flight paths initiative kind of quick Allison do you have anything yeah so flight paths is one of our initiatives and as Willow was saying it's our northwest Indiana history story collection and um, you know we started that in 2015 which is now six years ago and I guess I would say maybe three or four years in when we started sharing some of the stories we had collected in community forums and workshops, we began to hear people asking, um, okay, this is the black and white story of Gary and Northwest Indiana. What about the Brown story? Like what about the Latinx story? And in part, I think we didn't initially capture any of those stories because some I guess the predominance of the Brown community would have been like in East Chicago. Um, but as we found out, actually there were Puerto Ricans and Mexicans and Mexican Americans in Gary as well. So um, as we could, we finally were able to uh, enlarge the story a bit to start capturing or collecting stories from uh, Latinx members of, of Northwest Indiana as well. And we really began by interviewing historians about um, that that community's arrival to the region, um, those communities, I should say, plural. Um, and so today's story is a little bit different than what we would usually play, especially on the air here, in that it's not a biographical, an autobiographical mm -hmm. story. It's not like a personal story, but we're actually getting this snapshot of a time in history for the Mexican and Mexican-American community of Northwest Indiana. Um, so I think, yeah, I think I'll just stop there. Emiliano Aguilar is the historian. He's uh, getting his PhD at Northwestern. Um, and we have used his name on the website. We don't usually say who our storytellers are. But um, as a historian speaking from that vantage point, I think it's it's good to be able to give him his cred because he's he was born and raised in the region in East Chicago and is now doing this doctoral work um, on the Latinx community in um, Northwest Indiana. So this is his bread and butter too. <laughs> um, and so we're super happy to have him in the, in the project and the initiative. From 1929 to 1939, the United States 
and communities across the United States engaged in a repatriation movement of Mexican nationals. And this varies from locale to locale. In the Calumet region, there's two great examples of completely different processes between the Indiana Harbor region in East Chicago and Gary. The Indiana Harbor repatriation campaign begins really in earnest in 1934 under the guidance of the American Legion and Paul Kelly, who establishes an emergency relief association. So the American Legion in the Depression at the national level ask all their chapters to combat the depression as well as they can at the local level. And Paul Kelly really takes this, you know, very patriotic nationalist message to heart. And he organizes with a lot of other World War I veterans in the region to go about creating this association to repatriate the Mexicans. We are doing the Mexican nationals a favor. The region is too cold and they are not built for it. They are going back well-educated in the United States system and they will be outstanding Mexican citizens now that they've had you know, this time in the United States. Paul Kelly wrote everyone who was anyone about possibly finding funding or legal avenues to repatriate the roughly 3,000, 4,000 Mexicans and Mexican-Americans living in the harbor, uh, all the way up to the Secretary of Labor, William Doak, who sort of had to tell them, you know, no, the Department of Labor has found that a lot of these people are actually U.S. citizens, and Paul Kelly still perseveres. He writes members such as Joseph Block, who is very well known as a steel magnet the Block family ran inland steel for funding, and Block agrees to this. However, Block sets his own terms, okay, if we're going to repatriate them, we're using railroad lines that inland steel already uses. Paul Kelly and his American Legion friends have gone door to door, figured out who's who, who's living where, how old the children are, how many days a week the fathers are working at Atlas Cement, at Inland Steel, in the railroad yard. And they tell them essentially, hey, you're only working two days a week maybe. You're not making enough to support you, your wife, and your several children. We're taking you off relief. And then that essentially put the father and the parents in general between a rock and a hard place, where they then either had to struggle by off the working two days a week in the mill or the rail yard or return to Mexico. And that forces a lot of these families to then take up the emergency relief associations offer and take these trains to Mexico. And Paul Kelly goes so far as to write the Mexican consulate in Chicago, and he coordinates with the Mexican consulate on these trains and the timetables of when they're going to get to Chicago, when that train's going to be in El Paso, and when Army Mexican National Guard should be ready at the border to intercept that train and take the repatriates. Whereas we see in neighborhoods like Gary, maybe not as well thought out, uh, there's instances in the old Gary Tribune of just loading up a pickup truck of a couple of dozen people and then driving it to the border and leaving them. And they'd load up the pickup truck while they have a band playing audio scary, according to the newspaper article. And the Mexican consulate is really aggravated at this because they have no idea who's being sent back, when they're going to get there, if they're even going to make it. And they sort of really admonish Gary and in one of the letters why aren't you doing things like East Chicago? Why are you not doing things like Paul Kelly and the ERA? From the Mexican state's perspective, they had just come off two decades of civil war, essentially, of revolution, violence, and the country's decimated. And Mexico is in itself also engaging in a repatriation movement. They're repatriating Chinese Mexicans, that there are now all these available agricultural opportunities, that if you return to Mexico, there will be a job for you here. And whether or not that was the case for me and these families, I cannot say. Uh, chances are not really if a lot of them still choose to then return to the region. In the Calumet region, these very formalistic measures really only last about 1932 to 1934, 35. Kelly stops eventually because the industrialists, they no longer want to pay for the train loads, or even in some cases the railroad companies no longer want to offer the special rate of $40 per car train load of Mexicans back to the border. And that sort of thing kills the local movement. But Kelly was still, in the case of Indiana Harbor, able to repatriate roughly half of the community. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio at WVLP 103.1 FM. I'm Allison Schutte, and here with my regular co-host, Willow Walsh, and our favorite guest, because our 
We've had her on more than once. That's what makes you favorite <laughs> because we really love all of our guests. Um, but Reagan Skaggs is also with us today. We're super excited to have an additional uh, discussant with us today. Um, so you just heard a little bit about um, some of the regional history in Northwest Indiana, uh, specifically for Mexican nationals and Mexican Americans, about the repatriation movement from, uh, which happened nationally from 1929 to 1939, and the time period we're looking at here in East Chicago and Gary is the mid-30s. Where do we start this conversation? <laughs> I mean, okay, I think first, maybe the best spot to start off is like, like how do we define what's being talked about as repatriation movement? Because I'm gonna be honest, like I had to, I had to Google this because I'm like, I feel like I know what it means, but we're talking about it in this weird way. Like, to where it's like, I don't know, do I know what repatriation means? So No, I had a completely different understanding of the word repatriation. Like, I had really only, I thought of it as a good thing, because I had only heard of it in the context of museums giving back oh, artifacts yeah. and, um, like, remains to their native countries or to indigenous people. So every time I've heard of repatriation, it's been, hey, can we give this person, this, this tribe of Native Americans, or can we give... Um, you know, a this other country <laughs> back to these items that we stole to put in our museum. So that was my whole conception of repatriation mm -hmm. until until very recently. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So how did you understand it from the context of the story or from Googling it? <laughs> I mean, it's just, it just sounds like deportation. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, that's something else that kind of hit me a little bit is this sounds, when you just listen to it on a, a very surface level, it sounds very kind of empathetic and it's something that I would say it's like it's almost like social work language okay um and then you actually listen to what's happening and you don't pay attention to you know the verbiage and so you're like oh this is a very familiar movement and a very familiar idea to my contemporary understanding of what deportation is yeah calling it emergency relief association mm -hmm. um sounds like this is to the benefit of of everyone involved um yeah. And I think it's interesting because we might not have noticed some of that difference if we hadn't the contrast with how Gary apparently handled its repatriation. I also wonder if Emiliano, as the historian, is at pains sometimes to remain, you know, as objective and descriptive as possible. Um, so some of that neutrality might be him trying to like, okay, like, how, you know, how, how much of my own opinion of this uh, do I have to restrain in order to let the listeners um, have their, make their own assessment of, of what's going on here? Mm -hmm. Did you learn anything else, Willa, from Google that you want to add to the... I mean, Google just defines it as return of someone to their own country, which, I mean, based on the story, we know that then... Not all of it is repatriation. Yeah. Some people are U.S. citizens. Yes. <laughs> but, yes. like, yeah, I think same as Reagan. It's like, how would we, how would I hear this story differently if it was instead called deportation movement? I mean, it mm -hmm. sounds like the same thing. It's effectively doing the same thing. But it sounds, like, cute with this little, like, repatriation. Like, we're doing this for you. This is, like, a good thing. Like a rebranding. Yeah, exactly. And it, like, it sounds awful. And I think it's so funny, Allison, that you point out, like, the tone of Emiliano. Because I, <laughs> I highlighted this word on, like, our second listen here um, about, like, like when Paul Kelly like faced like obstacles from the U.S. Department of Labor, who said that you know like most of these people he's trying to repatriate, quote unquote, are actually U.S. citizens. He says, well, Paul Kelly still perseveres, and he writes members such as Joseph Bach, and I'm like, oh my gosh, perseveres, <laughs> like, and it's just like like for me, if I was telling the story, I'd be like, this guy just won't stop. But no, yeah. on the first listen through, I was like, is he? Does he enjoy it? Did he think this was a good thing? Like, I had to look him up and get some additional context because... Wait, which who? Emiliano. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah, sorry. No, the speaker. I was very concerned at first. I was like, is the speaker really enthusiastic about this historical moment? I So I had to look him up and then have it. But I think it's like you're talking about that striving to have a more neutral basis while you're having yeah. like a personal investment and also, um, you know, trying to 
make it as accessible to as many people as possible. And I think it went a little bit maybe in the other way, not blaming him at all. But I just, it took me a second to catch up with maybe what the speaker yeah, yeah. intended. Yeah. Um, that also reminds me that this was edited out of, you know, a longer interview with Emiliano, of course, and there's more of the history. So if people listening are really interested in knowing more, um, both on both sides of this repatriation movement, um, you can go to our website at welcomeproject.valpo.edu. And if you search the flight paths category there, um, you will see Emiliano's face because this is a video on our, our mm -hmm. website and you can look at the different videos we have that he's given us that provides a, a broader context too for what is happening here for Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. Um, but yeah, I think that part of the savvy of Paul Kelly is that you called it rebranding, right, Reagan? Um, is that this uh, rationale for what is happening um, is that uh, you know, this, the temperament here is not best suiting the Mexican nationals. They will be, uh, having, having been educated in American democracy here, <laughs> they will be much better suited, um, to going home and serving their own country and communities. Um, so I, and I, I feel like we hear a lot of that kind of language from politicians and, I mean, it's on both sides. So if it's the side that you like, you appreciate that kind of justification or rationale or understanding. But um, it's reminding me right now of the conversations about voting rights restrictions, mm -hmm. which is what I hear it called in my press and what um, people who also have a progressive uh, political um, framework would call it. And then the Republicans uh, think of it as like, I can't... Apologies for not like remembering the language <laughs> that the Republican senators are using, but it has to do with like making sure that voting is accurate, you know, and like voter fraud, anti-voter fraud. Yeah, like just making sure that everything's legit. Mm -hmm. So, it, I mean, it really is the way we frame these things. Um, it's easier to see in hindsight, like how to critique the framing. And when you're in the middle of it, it just... Um, depending, I mean, if it's, if it's the side, if it's, if you're a conservative or Republican who's worried about voter fraud, then of course that all sounds just accurate. It doesn't sound like branding in any, in any sense of the word. What are other things that stood out to you both from this particular moment? You know, I came to it knowing it pretty well because I interviewed Emiliano and edited this story. So well, I think we learned that there are, well, what Emiliano tells us is that there are two, like, completely different processes that happen between eChicago and Gary. So I think, like, for the most part, what we hear is what's happening in eChicago, which feels like this highly standardized practice that, like, Paul Kelly is kind of, like, getting together. He's, like, talking to people at the steel mills, right? And he's talking, he's, like, talking to the U.S. Department of Labor, and he's really trying to, like, cover all of his bases here. He talks about, like, going door-to-door -door and, like, knowing who's living where, how old the children are, how many days a week the fathers are working, and, like, starting to understand why people are worried about census. Yeah! Right <laughs> oh, that sounds like East 100%. Berlin! That sounds nuts! But, like, oh my gosh, but, like, the fact that he's, like, it's so, like, meticulously done and that it's, like, he's getting funding, he's getting support from these big players that are, like, funding Inland Steel and also going door-to-door, -door, removing relief from these families. So it's, like, Which, basically, how did he like, even have the power to do exactly. that? Exactly. But it's, like, possible? but also all the way down to, like, managing the train schedules, knowing when they're going to get on the train, when they're going to get in El Paso. It's just, like... It's so weirdly specific to me, and I just, I don't know, it's like, it's such like a well-oiled machine, and I don't know, part of me is like, that's, I don't know, it's like I see that, and if it wasn't being used to, like, deport U.S. citizens to a country that they didn't grow up in, like, I don't know, like, to me, I'm like, I'm looking at this, and I'm like, this seems so activist-driven. It's like, look at this guy, mm -hmm. he's lining up funding, he's lining up supporters, He's got like all, he's got the agenda down. He's got like all of these things going. And it's so weird to like think through every aspect of like how to get these people out of our country and like out of the harbor, like the Indiana Harbor. 
I don't know. It's, it's like it doesn't match up to me. It's like you think that if you're smart enough to go through all of these things that you'd be smart enough to be like, this isn't a piece of pie and like I won't starve if somebody else also has a piece of pie. I don't know. Mm. So it's just really weird to me. But it's, yeah, I don't know. The thing that surprised me the most is that it feels really well thought out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is happening during the depression, um, which is not to excuse this behavior or your point that like, if you can organize this well, why aren't you organizing to like, actually provide relief for more people as opposed to thinking that, oh, if I get rid of 2000 Mexican nationals, then the region won't have as much of a problem with finding food. I'm like, "Mm, yeah, that's probably not going to make that kind of difference. Mm -hmm. Um, And at least the way that Emiliano talks about it, um, Paul Kelly thought of what he was doing as patriotic. So I think there's a lot about World War I that I don't quite understand in the same way that I feel like I have a better picture of World War II, a better picture of the Vietnam War, and those kinds of things. So I wonder, too, about World War I, the end of that war, and then the, the Depression, like how people are thinking about America at that time and who's supposed to be American um did, like did world war one make us very like um I like we wanted to step out of any sort of global picture and just like really hunker down and take care of ourselves um in which case then somebody who considers himself patriotic is going to look at somebody who's not quote unquote American and feel like okay well we need to actually just not only tighten our attention to our own borders, but we need to get people out who aren't supposed to be here, which again, it's just like, if you don't know your history, you would just think it should only be white people in America because that's what America is. And if you study history, like legally through the court system, that was actually being uh, like consolidated. Like if you were going to be an American citizen, uh, you had to be white and basically had to be a white male landowner. So all of the indigenous people and then Mexicans and who had lived in what is North America that became the U.S. And so in many places um, in the South and the Southwest would have actually been here longer than European. It's like, who's American here? Like... Mm-hmm. Uh, this definition of like who gets to be American and when it's very imposed as opposed to suppose as opposed to like uh, Nate like s- tied to land somehow and like who's here so like we look around now and we're like well this is no longer true and it's causing a lot of like social disorder but we've looked around as Americans and said we're mostly white that must be who we like are as a country and so if we want to preserve America, we have to get back to that sort of white normalcy. Um, But that idea that it's natural to think of Americans as white is actually, it's not natural. It's not rooted in any connection to the land. It's rooted in legislation, (laughs) policy. Um, So it's just a kind of odd thing to uh, work with that kind of definition regardless of the context, the depression, World War One, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that was a soapbox moment. I apologize. <laughs> You're listening to a Welcome Project Radio. This is Listen Up with Allison Schutte, Willow Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs. And we are talking about a story um, this time for uh, Latinx in Northwest Indiana and the repatriation movement that took place in the 30s in the U.S. Um, of Mexican nationals and oftentimes Mexican-Americans who were caught up in the net. Um, anything else you want to make about the difference between, or did you want to say something else, Willow? Yeah, no, I mean, I was just going to add on to what you were saying about, like, when we understand, like, what makes us American. And I think, like, I don't know, it's, it's like, I definitely think, obviously, like, systems such as, like, redlining and other various ways that we've, like, emboldened, like white people to have more privilege through various avenues, through legislations. Like, I definitely think that it's like that helps us be more like, you know, white people centered in America. But I also think it's like, I mean, just in like the net, like national zeitgeist, it's just, I also think of just like the effect like that media has. And it's so easy Mm -hmm. to be like, 
I don't know, like, as a not, like, straight, cis, Christian, white person, like, on TV, it's, like, easy to be kind of, like, gaslit into believing that it's, like, you're, like, a super, super minority and that, like, nobody... Like, you can't see yourself, because if you turn on the TV, and I don't know what it would be, I guess they didn't have TV in the 1930s, but if you turn on the radio or something like that, but it's like, you know, like the Walter Cronkite of the time, or, you know, it's like you see all of these people who are in high positions in America who are white, Mm -hmm. you see people on the radio who are white, you see presidents who are white, you see legislators who are white, it's like you keep having this constant sort of reinforcement that, like, everybody around you in power and everybody that you know, like in media or celebrities, they're also majority white people. And so I feel like it's so easy, not only through legislation, but just through these mm. small avenues that we don't necessarily think about, like representation on, you know, in media, like how it's easy for us to all sort of think about like, this is what America is because this is what we see as America all the time. And I think that's what makes it really easy to sort of like, I don't know, I, like, I guess I'd, I'd make like a, like a side thing to like Fox News and like how it's really easy to sort of, I don't know, see America through a very specific lens yeah. like that. Yeah. And if it's what you're hearing every time you go to your channels, whether that's social media, Fox or other conservative commentators, then like, why would you even know otherwise? Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want to take us off on a total tangent with the pandemic, but you know, the news now is, okay, so our cases are rising. The Delta variant is an incredible danger still, and people are not vaccinated. Uh, We know vaccination works, or I should say science knows that vaccination (laughs) works. Um, and I, so it's just, it's almost impossible from where I sit as someone who my media tells me, this is what science says, it's safe and it works. And I, so I just, I, there's this like kind of curtain of like, I don't understand why are people putting themselves in this situation and therefore putting other people in this situation. So you can hear all the judgment, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just like, I, cause I cannot understand. And I suppose even if I did understand like, okay, let me self, let me put myself in the shoes of someone who's only listening to Fox news or reading, I don't know, like Breitbart online or going to social media and getting things sent via their network. And all of it is supporting this idea that, Hey, this, is not FDA approved, like in the way that we're used to. It happened really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, the government is forcing people to get vaccinated, which is not true. Um, there are chips being implanted so you can be tracked, which is not true. Um, but if that's all you're hearing, then at least I understand why maybe, and you haven't seen people in your community yet get sick. Like, then maybe I'm like, okay, like, I can kind of mm-hmm. start to get my head around it. Like, I still think the judgment is still there because I'm just like, we don't have to get sick. Mm-hmm. Like, we just don't have to get sick. And we're such a privileged country because we have the vaccine. And there's, like, places in the world that there's less than 1% um, vaccinated because they just don't even have access. So I said I wasn't going to take us on a tangent. And then I did another soapbox <laughs> moment. So, um... Yes, media and media bubbles. <laughs> Reagan, we haven't let you in for a while. Like. <laughs> no, you guys, I mean... Do you have any soapboxes? <laughs> you both have a, a very good point. Um, my soapbox would be the 24 news cycle is destroying everything. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but it's. I think it all comes back to that rebranding conversation where... It's a very reductive way to put it, but ultimately, yes, when it comes to both um, Democrats, Republicans, or a third party of your choice, no judgment here, <laughs> a lot of what the language used, a lot of the um, images portrayed, a lot of the, the Twitter presences, those are calculated decisions. Um, and part of life is accepting that and understanding that this is partially how things go, but the other part of life is understanding that these branding decisions, like, maybe don't have as big of a decision on, say, I don't know, Coca-Cola. I don't really care if they change their red can. But it does make a very big deal when it comes to, well, we're having these big conversations about the the reality of science because of 
a politician or several politicians or an entire group of politicians decision to brand in a certain way in order to have a rapidly loyal voter base. And those decisions, I think, are ultimately image and brand focused as opposed to well-being focused, which I would like yeah. to think um, yeah. the more science-based thought processes would be based on. Like it has a agenda that's not self-perpetuating. It's mm-hmm. actually about the well-being of a community, mm-hmm. of an individual, of a country. Yeah, of the here and now also. So not even necessarily, in my personal opinion, not even necessarily like a future-looking, yeah. looking at brands. So when I remember um, when the Trump, Trump, not the Trump, when Trump lost um, the 2020 election and um, a big movement within Republican circles and on the news and Fox, and I have loved ones who watch Fox and I saw a lot of this news coverage was, well, there's voter fraud. Uh, A lot of voting is somehow incorrect. It's been perfectly fine until this moment, but now it is not fine. And we need to focus on this and we need to focus on putting all this legislation in to fix this voter fraud. And then it came time for um, additional senator and governor elections afterwards, and it was a little bit of a shot in the foot for some areas of the Republican country because people were like, well, voting isn't accurate anymore. You just told us this. So why would I vote? Because that's not real kind of deal. So sometimes it, it's very self-serving, and oftentimes it's very of the moment as opposed to mm. Thinking of the well-being of, you know, the actual Republican community as a whole of, like, trusting the system to vote and encouraging them to vote, which I would argue is a problem on the left with all of the division um, on voting and who to vote for and all that other fun stuff. Like, I think that because we, it was convenient in the moment to do that for Trump, it is now inconvenient, but, you know, we're not going to think of that far ahead. Even, um, even the progressive side. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Both sides do it. But that's just, you know, a very prominent example in the news right now and uh, yeah, on my mind. Yeah. So this is the part that I think it's really... Before you <laughs> yeah. take us deeper, Willow, this is WVLPLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso. You can also find us online. And you're here with me, Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh and Reagan Skaggs. And today on Listen Up, we've been discussing um, the story of Mexican repatriation that happened in the U.S. in the 30s, and specifically what that looked like in Northwest Indiana. Uh, so we have a historian that has been sharing that history and how it played out here in the region. So sorry to interrupt. Yeah, Please no, no, thank you. Um, so okay, so this is the part that I think is the most complex and tenuous and we've talked about this in previous conversations specifically like transgender rights conversations and bear with me for a second I would bring this all together so okay so we have this idea of like branding this idea that like we want to make this seem like a good thing like Emiliano's talking about like how like Paul Kelly in this story is like trying to brand it as a way that like we are serving Mexican Americans or Mexican nationals by you know we've educated them we've given them a lot and so we're gonna send them back and they'll be better off than they were because we did our thing to them and now they'll be great in Mexico yeah not only a gift to them themselves as individuals but also to the entire like state (laughs) like in existence of Mexico exactly so I'm thinking like if this were to play out like right now for us like I think it would go similar to the pandemic coverage right It, it would be it would be really varied on both sides. And the thing that I get caught up in is, okay, so like I'm sure on the left, we would be like, well, this is really like colonizing and like really (laughs) like just this idea that it's just really condescending that like we're bestowing things onto people and then like kicking them out anyway. But then it's like the, the part that gets complex for me is that this idea of like, like, is this a shield used by Paul Kelly to, you know, be racist and discriminatory against Mexican people, but using it through the guise of this branding, like, well, we're doing a lot, you know, they're not going to get enough hours at the steel mill, they'd be much better off getting a job back in Mexico, and this is like a win-win for everybody. It's like, Like, I wonder, like, the same with, like, transgender bathrooms. It's just like, you know, it's like, well, I don't want trans people in my spaces because I am afraid that if they're in my space, I will be harmed. It's like, is that sort of, like, 
bathroom legislation just a guise for like anti-trans feelings towards people mm-hmm. and but what what i think is a really complex part is that it's like i don't know and i i think it's hard to kind of go against because it's hard to I don't know, like, nay say, like, Paul Kelly in this moment, where he really believes that he's doing something mm-hmm. well for people, and being like, well, why wouldn't you want to do well for other people? Kind of like, I guess, maybe the pro-life movement, like, why wouldn't you want to save a life? Why do you want to kill people? It's like, it's it's so hard to go up against that narrative. I don't know, I'm kind of getting up on my soapbox, but, like, it, it, it makes it a little more complex, because then it's hard to reach each other when we have yeah. these, like, two specific ways that we're viewing this situation, and then it's kind of hard to come together in the middle and, like, kind of break down that branding and break down, like, hey, actually, like, I get that you're branding it in this way, but that's actually pretty racist. Look at the people we're targeting, and you've even been told that most of these people are U.S. citizens born in America, birthright citizens here, but still wanting to take them back to Mexico. You know, it's like, it's like, that's racist. It's like, well, then you get defensive on the other end. Yeah, I don't know. It's just like, it feels so hard. I just see this situation playing out even today, like in the pandemic and other conversations that we're having. It's the specific branded ways that we're viewing this that makes it really hard to connect, especially when connecting means pointing out flaws in each other's arguments yeah. or like being vulnerable and saying, I was wrong. I see your point. And so I don't know, for me, this is just like another avenue to be like, wow, this is, this is still a divide. And this is still really complex to understand like how we can get out of future divides like this. I don't know. Or whether we can, because maybe this, there's something about human being, human nature that just keeps reproducing what you're talking about. Like if you, if you, whatever your framework is, if there's not enough shared like definitions, shared values, shared facts, then like you can't, like you said, connect. You can't really talk. You're not really talking to each other. You're just saying, this is reality. And then somebody else is saying, no, this is reality. So there's no touch point at all. Um, and I, I don't know how exactly you get around that, especially when you want to make a decision about like, should be, should we allow transgender people to perform on the sport team Mm -hmm. with which they identify? Mm -hmm. Like that's a actual question that needs a decision in the moment so that the trans athletes can participate. Mm -hmm. So how do you, like have a con so then then and I think that the tricky thing is too you were pointing at this like the other side starts to use the values that they know the other team quote unquote holds so like you'll hear the conservatives say well we want to protect the right of girls to perform in their athletic sports without you know unfair competition like assuming that a trans athlete who's male to female would have to like be better athletically Mm -hmm. just because of their born genetic code Mm -hmm. or something Mm -hmm. like that. So it sounds like it's using a very lauded progressive value, which is independence and fairness for girls. And it's like turning it around on its side. And it's just, yeah, I, it's not, that's not a conversation where people are trying to understand each other because it's a conversation where people are trying to make decisions and win the outcome mm-hmm. that they want. So you just operate on different um, m- means of communication because you're not trying to understand each other. You, you want it as specific outcome. Mm-hmm. So then it's just like, who's got more power or who's mm-hmm. got more money or who's got the lobbyists um, or who has the public, you know, kind of perception on their side. I don't, do you have any insight on this Reagan in terms of like communication skills? Yeah. I feel like you guys are almost having, like you're talking about the same thing, but I feel like you're almost having um, two different conversations and one of them we're talking about 
Poshreiner or the the theoretical um, other um, in this moment that we're talking about. Not Paul um, Schreiner, but Paul Kelly. Paul Kelly, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Paul Schreiner, if you're out there, I apologize. Um, <laughs> Paul Kelly. Um, it's We're almost having a conversation about motivation um, for Paul Kelly and for figures that we view as similar to Paul Kelly. So uh, what does it mean and how do you hold an individual accountable for actions such as these, using language such as this, attempting maybe to uh, use language of the quote-unquote other team to make their cause seem a little more equitable, a little more palatable. Um, And that is always a little bit of a dead end of a conversation, but also an important conversation, just because there is no way to definitively know what Paul Kelly's true motivations are. If he truly believed that he was doing what was best for both the people that he was, I would say, deporting, um, and for the people in his community. There's no way we can truly like ascertain that information. Yeah. Um, but what we can do is look at this individual's actions. So you can look at those actions, and I'm, I would come down a little hard, uh, pretty hard, <laughs> on this individual's actions. But also, just like you and, and Lula were talking about, it is important to try and be empathetic and try to understand, like, where this individual is coming from and if they truly do believe what they're saying. Because if they truly do believe what they're saying and they truly are using um, this more palatable language because they believe in this more palatable language, um, that's a very different approach or a very different way of speaking to somebody in that in that position than it would be somebody who is outright um, like violently racist. But it's hard. It's hard to navigate and to know where that line is. Yeah, and I think I'm reading Valerie Kaur's memoir now. Um, I can't remember the title, the subtitles, like a memoir of revolutionary love. Um, And it's K-A-U-R, if anybody's interested in looking her up. Um, But she's talking about, um, well, she's talking about loving the other, loving the enemy, or she calls it the meat opponent, and loving yourself. Those are like three sort of fundamental pieces of what she sees as revolutionary love and then like uh, the power to transform culture. Um, And when she's talking about loving the opponent, um, which by the way, there's a piece for rage in there. (laughs) So it's not like an all out, like I'm going to support my enemy and just uh, take their side and drop all my values, that kind of stuff. Um, but she does talk about listening to understand, which is something at the Welcome Project that we uh, have always, like it's, it's sort of our main practice is listening to understand. And she talks about that as not something that then changes your mind in particular, um, but helps you see the broader world in which everybody's operating because you know a little bit more about how that person can behave in the way that they do, which probably, uh, in with few exceptions, does come out of some sense of integrity for that person. Um, so the thing that I, so I get that piece of it, you know, like, okay, if I understand where somebody's coming from, I, I start to see how they make sense of the world in a way that's different than I do. I, then I get stuck because like, she's talking about it in terms of, um, sort of community organizing and like being a part of a broad scale movement. And, and either I don't quite see how I am a part of a broad scale movement, which is possible, like, because I tend to have, you know, these hero stories in my head, right? So you always think that you would know if you were part of something like super big and amazing, because it would be making changes happen here and left and right. And Um, I think one of the things I'm learning is that, you know, change really doesn't happen at that kind of pace. So maybe I am a part of a broader movement through the Welcome Project doing the part of this work that I can, and it's having an impact that I can't always see. Um, Or, like, I'm not in locations in the way that she is. She's been an organizer out on the streets. She got a law degree so that she could uh, advocate and fight through the legal system. So she has certain places she can access maybe. So she feels like when she understands better her opponent, there's a way to, okay, now how do I go? If, if I understand, 
why conservative legislatures want to make sure that trans athletes cannot be in the sport, uh, or sorry, on the team that they identify with. Um, let's say I understand why they think that way. Now, I don't feel like as a person, I know what to do to, to go about um, dis continuing to disagree, even if I understand and, and I don't know, like propose alternative legislation. <laughs> like, I, like, how would I do that? I just feel like a nobody in that sense, you know? So I think I get a little confused on that. Move from listening to understand um, and then see the opponent as human and grant them their full dignity as a human, which is a really underlies what Valerie Kaur is talking about, um, and MLK too, um, and others, and that revolutionary love movement. Um, so that's so essential, but then like, what's the next piece for advocacy if you wanna see a different outcome from your opponent? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So yeah, we're just, I think we're just talking now about mm -hmm. things that, where we get stuck, places where we get stuck <laughs> that we just don't quite know, you know, what, what happens next. Um, and maybe that's okay. Maybe we don't always need to know. <laughs> does I does social work have a perspective on that kind of like change? I guess it depends on what kind of social worker you are too. I tend to yeah. think all social workers are like amazing progressive superheroes, you know, with capes and stuff that go around making the world a better place for all human beings. Um, and I think there's probably as much diversity within social work as there is anywhere else. I think, well, again, it comes back to that question of motivation. So I, mm -hmm. I personally also think that a lot of social workers, and I would say the same thing about like, you know, medical professionals or teachers are these awesome people who have superheroes and caves in. They want to do what they hope is for the best for the community. And ideally, because they have been educated as social workers or medical professionals or teachers, they're going to do that in a very evidence-based way. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so that is always key. Um, but I think, again, what it comes down to with what you're talking about with um, being stuck after, okay, so I have, I'm doing my best to have the empathy that I profess is my value. I am sitting down, I am maybe reading the articles that I have, my conservative friends or loved ones have sent me, I am reading them, I am trying to comprehend them, I am trying to understand things from your perspective, and I think that's a good first step. But I think you're right, where a lot of people then get stuck on that first step, um, and that's because the other steps are very long. <laughs> um, yeah. What it comes down yeah. to is it's similar for people in um, high control groups. It's similar for people in like a domestic relationship that isn't good. It's similar for people who just, it's very hard for the human brain to change its mind once it's dedicated to something. It's just something, uh, the, you know, the backfire effect, which is a psychological phenomenon, that kind of thing. Um, so it's all about time. Uh, and that's part of why I'm really interested in the Welcome Project and really passionate about the Welcome Project is because for a lot of people, especially in more rural areas or more conservative areas, whatever, they just legitimately may not have had a relationship or have had an experience with um, a certain type of person of color, a person of a certain gender or um, sexual orientation, have not had those experiences to negate what is being said about a broad swath of people. And obviously that does not always work. Um, my mom is a person of color and we live in a majority white, very conservative area. And she has worked in the community for a long time. So a lot of people who are like, oh, I really enjoy your mother. She's wonderful, but they'll take her as a, an exception. So mm -hmm. she is a, a brown people, a brown person who is good versus other brown people who are bad. But I think that that is unfortunately where we're at and what it takes is like just a slow exposure. So like Willow's talking mm -hmm. about, so some more media exposure to just more successful and positively portrayed people of color, trans people, all the other fun stuff. It's just a matter of like almost vaccinating or inoculating people mm -hmm. <laughs> into having an understanding of others. So you can come down to that level, but it's also about other people being willing to come down to that level of empathy and really sit and think and have the opportunity to like listen to a trans person ex experience and be open to that experience and hopefully change happens that way but you're right it's slow and it can sometimes can only be accomplished on a more personal level which then puts a lot of burden on 
the people who want to see that change in their friends or their loved ones or their therapist or their group, like whatever, whatever situation that person happens to be in. Yeah. I mean, I also think about, um, listening for me, listening to the story of the person you're describing in rural America, who's not been around or doesn't know they've been around people who are queer or people who are trans, uh, like their story is the one that I need to hear. Um, again, I feel like, um, not because I need to change my mind about like whether I'm going to, let's say with the pandemic, believe in science or not. I, whether that's like, because it's so embedded in me or because it's a fact that I can't unsee, I don't know, but like, um, that, yeah, that's the story that I need to hear. And I feel like sometimes progressives often forget the, I need to hear my opponent as opposed to make sure that my opponent hears the stories of all the people that there are their opponents, you know? So that is one of the things I really like about Valerie Kaur's book. And there's another, uh, book I'm reading about conflict and, um, healing resistance is the name of that one, which is, um, in the legacy of MLK's nonviolence and like actually practicing nonviolence in our lives today and in our movements today. Um, and he also really stresses that even though both Valerie and, um, this other writer whose name is eluding me, um, they, they don't change their positions, right. But they change their attitude with how they engage with people. Um, it's interesting because I see them on the <laughs> losing side. I mean, like progressives are not like, uh, regardless of, I, from my perspective, regardless of what conservative politicians are saying, like the progressives are not making that many inroads, you know? Um, so like, it feels like uh, they need to keep up their, their own position and advocacy um, but I'm really curious about how they're doing both of these things at the same time where they're granting full humanity to the opponent, which means really stepping towards them to understand um, how they see things from their perspective. But it's hard. It's hard work and it's long work. Um, and I feel like the the other sort of stopping block I keep coming up against is like who's feeling the impact in the meantime. Mm -hmm. um, and that to me always seems to be on the people who have been suffering and marginalized and oppressed already. So that makes it hard, but, um, like, I, I like, I don't know, like yeah. you can't just, mm -hmm. you can't just force change into the world. So I, yeah. Well, again, that's where it comes in where it's, you know, Ultimately, yes, it's important to be empathetic. And if you want to hopefully help change the people's minds, to be empathetic, to be a, a, you know, a kind presence to people who you don't necessarily agree with for the most part. Everybody has limits, and you should have limits and boundaries in your life. Um, but at the same time, um, remembering people's actions. So hmm. um, I think about this a lot with the high control groups or... Um, Religious, religious abuse essentially so like that kind of thing um it's a special interest of mine but um within those circles a lot of the times those people who lead those groups are people who are a part of those movements truly believe in the things that they are doing and that they are saying but they are still actively harming people so I kind of view it similar to if you have ever had an experience with an addict in your family mm -hmm. where one, this person has to be willing to change on their own, and hopefully you can, if you choose to, rebuild that relationship. But part of rebuilding that relationship and part of um, the success of that change is acknowledging harm and acknowledging, um, in, in the broad political sense, acknowledging personhood and acknowledging wrongdoing on, on the part of, you know, a state of a systematic entity. And that's a big ask for a lot of people, but it's hopefully one that people will become more comfortable with as the conversation continues to shift to, okay, so this is what systematic racism means, and this is what it means to grow up in that kind of system. And now we have more prominent 
um, people of color um, in government that are willing to do things and say things and work through that. And we have more uh, uh, more people of, I'm sorry, <laughs> we have more LGBT perspectives in government, like that kind of thing. Um, so again, you're right, it's really slow, but I think it's just empathetically holding people accountable. Mm. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I think I have a tendency to also see the work that's left to do. And I don't oftentimes celebrate the wins. So like in the case of the story for Northwest Indiana, I mean, uh, many of the Mexican nationals and Mexican Americans who were deported slash repatriated did return, did come back. We have a really strong um, Latinx community in East Chicago, especially, but also more broadly in the region. And some of the other stories that um, Emiliano tells about that community um, through the um, 20th century, 20th century, um, <laughs> is like, ama like amazing uh, community organizing work that they did, the mutual associations they formed because they weren't getting support from any federal or state level, um, the way that they worked within the labor movement um, to help win not only uh, benefits for Latinx workers, but just more broadly, the steel workers generally. Um, so there's lots to also celebrate and hold up as wins, even though we've selected this one kind of moment um, to look at today, which strangely enough, the reason that I decided, you know, to bring this story to the air was because we had posted it on our Facebook page uh, shortly after July 4th. And um, I thought it was uh, a nice kind of commentary on celebrating um, American independence, thinking like, okay, like as we remember how America declared itself um, and who we want to be, let's also look at how this immigration and citizenship have always been contested categories for us. Mm -hmm. And that was true then, and it's still true today. And um, when I reposted that to one of the class of Valparaiso University student pages, uh, we got some, some responses that were very minimal. Uh, the first was Valpo sucks. And I just, we're, it's, we're not gonna have time to unpack all of this now, <laughs> but I was just like, what does that mean? Like, how am I supposed to understand or interpret that? Like, uh -huh. which Valpo? I mean, I'm assuming this is a student, so they're thinking the university, but this is not a university position. This is a welcome project story. And so then I was like, is, is he saying something about like, this is one of those progressive positions and like, but you know, anyway, we don't get any, we don't get to know any of mm -hmm. that. Um, some other student replied to, uh, to him and said, L-M-A-O, which I think I know as a 50-year-old <laughs> what that means, but you all can look up if you need to. Angry, we're all smarter than you, I see. And I'm like, I don't even know how to read the reply to the reply. Like, what does that, like, what's going on there? It's like some sort of snapshot of this conversation, I guess, we've been alluding to, like how we're talking past each other. Mm -hmm. um, but... Yeah, so in terms of why we even talked about this story at all today, it was just like how these kinds of stories create a, tr like a, 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 I don't know, I feel like the word trigger is overused these days, but just triggers these kind of automatic kind of replies or responses that don't get the sort of care and attention that we're actually hoping for at the Welcome Project. Um, are there final thoughts as we head out today on the story or this larger conversation about conversation? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just think that, I mean, I would just plus one what you guys said just about the idea of, you know, being a better listener and trying to understand people that go so far for yourself. And then it can get incredibly frustrating when you try to turn that into connection with other people around you. So, I don't know. Be empathetic to others and also yourself. <laughs> yeah, Reagan, do you have any parting <laughs> pearls? 
uh, boundaries are important. Mm-hmm. My little social work thing in there. Boundaries are important. And remember that you can only control what you're going to do. So, you know, do what you can, but understand that other people have to meet you in the middle. Yeah. Uh, I will close with uh, one of the Buddhist teachers that I like. She talks about strong back, soft front, which I think brings the two sides together, right? Like the strong back is you setting in your own dignity and your values soft front is remaining open and trying to be ready to care for and receive um whoever is before you um like friend foe sort of thing so um that's it for today thanks for listening and thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Center, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com and at 108 East Lincoln Way in Valparaiso. They are open for business. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. And if you enjoyed the stories you heard today, you can find more stories like this one on our website at welcomeproject.belvo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to start a conversation with us or ask any questions, you can email us at welcomeprojectradio at gmail.com. And Allison, did you want to tell them about the Luo that's coming up? I did. Why, <laughs> thank you for reminding me, Willow. It's a fundraiser for WVLP. So if you're listening to us on the air or online, uh, you know that the programming that we provide is uh, valuable and it's very local. Um, And so we need your financial support to stay on the air. The luau at the market is Saturday, August 7th, and the doors open at 6 p.m. The concert, which features the Essence of Elvis impersonator, Kurt Lechner. That starts at 7. It's for all ages. There's a beer garden. There's delicious luau food. And you can either pay um, for a a ticket for the meal or just a ticket to enter. And uh, if you Google luau at the market, you will find the uh, information you need there to get those tickets. So please join us and help support WVLP. Yeah, we hope to see you there.